right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeart3D Audio. For full exposure, listen with headphones. How did the United States develop the technology to pull ahead of the Russians in the space race? Many believe that a sophisticated guidance system was salvaged from a crashed UFO. Now, for the first time, a motion picture tells the story of these incredible events. It started with an accident in space. And it led to the crash of a large metallic disc in the Arizona desert. Why have the facts been kept hidden from the American public? What is it our government doesn't want us to know? This new motion picture reveals the startling proof that the government actually has the wreckage of a flying saucer and the bodies of alien astronauts. You will learn the incredible story of the most startling government cover-up ever conceived. See the story of the UFO cover-up, Hangar 18. I'm Toby Ball. And this is Strange Arrivals. Episode 12, Hypernormalization. In 1897, Pearson's Magazine in Great Britain and Cosmopolitan Magazine in the United States serialized H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds. It was published in book form the following year. It is one of the first stories of humans confronted with beings from outer space, and it has inspired movies, comic books, and Orson Welles' famous radio broadcast. It's safe to say that most alien-related popular culture doesn't engage directly with the UFO folklore. Classics such as Invasion of the Body Snatchers or The Day the Earth Stood Still comment on larger social issues of the time. Abduction accounts have led to movies like The UFO Incident and Fire in the Sky, which address those particular stories, but not the broader UFO context. Even Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which borrows some from the UFO folklore of the late 1970s, does not concern itself much with broader themes of government complicity beyond the security around Devil's Tower. The most significant piece of popular culture to use the UFO folklore was the iconic 1990s television show, The X-Files. I had an idea way back in the 1980s. There was a show on that I loved uh, when I was a kid called Kolchak the Night Stalker. 
And it was the scariest thing I'd ever seen on TV. So I thought, there's nothing scary on TV. Why don't I try to do a show that is as scary as that one? This is Chris Carter, creator of The X-Files. So I sat down and came up with the characters of Mulder and Scully, FBI agents. I was inspired, especially you, you can see Scully's red hair by Silence of the Lambs. That was an early inspiration. So I came up with these two characters and I kind of turned the tables on what would be the stereotypical believer and skeptic made Mulder, the male, the believer, and Scully, the female, the skeptic. I wanted to make her uh, not only a doctor, but uh, a scientist, so she could refute Mulder's claims with uh, her hard science. It's a take on another iconic duo, the Kirk-Spock partnership from the original Star Trek, a way for the issues of the show to be reasoned through the two lead characters. The show is a fictionalized, scripted, storytelling vehicle for these characters, Mulder and Scully, looking for the truth. And I said to them, you know, they wanted to wrap up the episodes at the end, kind of in a neat bow with an explanation for what Mulder and Scully had seen. And I said, that's exactly what you don't want. You don't want to uh, have the answers. You want to be left with wonder. You want to be left with awe. You want to be left with your own opinions at the end. And it took me uh, a real hard sales pitch to get them to understand that. With this initial conception in place, Carter brought together writers to help develop the show and write episodes. I was really lucky to hire two teams of smart guys, Glenn Morgan and James Wong, who were a writing team, uh, and then a writing team of Howard Gordon and Alex Gonza, who were also two smart guys, who went on to create Homeland together. I'm Glenn Morgan. I was one of the exec producers of the X-Files in the year one, two, four, and then the last two. Morgan wrote with a partner named Jim Wong, who he'd been friends with since high school. We were going to go on some other show, a romantic comedy that was the hit pilot of that season. And Peter Roth, who was the head of Fox TV, had said, watch his pilot. I demand that you watch his pilot. And so sort of career politics, we go, well, we'll watch his pilot, the X-Files and tell Peter, thanks for thinking of us, but we're going to go do this other hot show. And uh, Jim and I watch Exiles Pilot, and we're like, whoa, I want to do this show. Carter, along with the two writing teams, developed the Mulder and Scully arc through different types of stories. Depending on the week, it could be a horror, suspense, thriller, or paranormal episode. So the X-Files, from the very beginning, was not just going to be a UFO alien show. It was going to be more than that. And I had actually created a marketing package before any of these people came on when I turned the pilot in originally to 20th Century Fox, spelling out what the show was. So it just happened that I was able to pair with the right people to bring the idea of making it a horror show, a suspense show, a thriller, uh, what have you, that it became really three-fifths of the time it was something other than aliens and UFOs. The shows can be broken down into two types. The monster of the week shows that are primarily standalones, but which also advance the Mulder-Scully dynamic. And the mythology episodes, which run throughout the length of the series and tell the ongoing UFO story. We did, I think, six mythology episodes typically per season, a two-parter, three two-parters actually. And that kind of became our formula. 
the way Mulder and Scully approached the other typically 16 to 19 cases was by taking positions, by taking hard-edged science versus a obdurate and determined belief in the paranormal on Mulder's side. And it became kind of competitive and it became a, a really a long uh, nine-year flirtation between the two characters and a seduction of sorts. These episodes required the writers to be able to articulate both a skeptical and a paranormal explanation for each phenomenon investigated by Mulder and Scully. For Morgan, who had grown up very open to the reality of the paranormal, writing from Scully's perspective opened his eyes to a new viewpoint. Certainly working on the X-Files, the need to be Scully is the first time that I started looking at What's the other side of this story? Because you always had to have Mulder's explanation, you had to have Scully's explanation, and many times you'd have to have an explanation that was down the middle. So it was the X-Files and having to write for Scully that I started getting a little more grounded, a little more skeptical. Movies, books, and television shows that are inspired by or reference purported actual events make a claim on some relation to reality. When shows are prefaced by based on a true story or inspired by actual events, the implication for the audience is that what they are consuming is not mere fiction. It is given a stamp of some sort of factual legitimacy. In a note to open the Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown famously wrote that while the characters and plot of the book were fiction, the history it referenced was factual. This was, to put it mildly, a stretch. Carter had to contend with how close he wanted to hew to actual cases and the stories that were out there. When we first started the show, there was something interesting that happened. Fox had bought my pitch. They had uh, liked my outline. They had liked the pilot script. We had begun casting and we had filmed the pilot uh, we had shown the pilot to the network. They were very happy with it, but they wanted me to put a disclaimer up before the show saying that for the viewer, that uh, these are all based on actual events. It was as if we were creating a kind of documentary in the network's mind. For the pilot episode, I went along with it, but then it's like I, I realized that's not what the show is. I was trying to create a sense of awe and the idea that science doesn't have all the answers and that religion doesn't have all the answers and that there are things beyond the pale. I liked all that, but I also uh, have to say, I come at this from more Scully's side than Mulder's side with a science bias. I really have a kind of prove it to me philosophy. And so really it was me, the thesis was my own troubled perspective on what is true and what is not. While there were more episodes that were not concerned with UFOs, the mythology is what many people associate with the show. The X-Files did pull from the line of UFO folklore that we've been examining, centered around government conspiracy and cover-ups. But it also took from another strain of UFO folklore, alien abductions. We looked at alien abductions in season one of Strange Arrivals, 
And the X-Files was created during the late evolutionary phase of that narrative. For Carter and his collaborators, this was the cutting edge of UFO studies at the time. There were two things. I'd been reading about UFOs and alien abductions, but also I was given just by chance a survey called the Roper Survey, which was done by Dr. John Mack, who any UFO aficionado will know well. Mack was a highly regarded professor of psychology at Harvard who came to believe, along with Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs, that hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, had been abducted by aliens. Back to the Roper survey. And it said that millions of Americans believed in the uh, UFO phenomenon. Some millions less believed they'd actually seen a UFO. Some millions less believed they'd had contact, but that there was uh, interest in the phenomenon. And so I thought the first thing that I would like to do is play with that in a personal way, Mulder, making Mulder's sister an abductee, which is what his entry was into the world of the paranormal. I had kind of three go-to guys, was Dr. John Mack, David Jacobs, and uh, Bud Hopkins. Those were the, the three people that I read mostly, and I had, I really developed my uh, sense of all things UFOs and, the, and uh, abductions. Uh, through uh, reading their books. This is Carol Rainey, Bud Hopkins' ex-wife and former research partner, talking about how Hopkins changed the alien abduction narrative from what had been developed over more than two decades, starting with the alleged 1961 abduction of Betty and Barney Hill in the mountains of New Hampshire. His writing added to it was that nobody was safe anywhere, that aliens could enter your bedroom at night, coming straight through the walls, coming through the windows. I mean, his view of alien beings in the world was that they were godlike, really. They, I mean, ordinary physics did not prohibit them from doing whatever they wanted to do to take advantage of people's um, helplessness. And they were, the abductees were used in, in Bud's thought in the same way that we observe, you know, wolves out on the, in the wild. And we experimented on them to some degree from afar. And that's what he felt uh, the aliens were doing to us. They might put tracking devices in us, what's called an implant these days. And, you know, many of his people came up with those implants partly to add credence to Bud's narrative. And because that was the story that was becoming increasingly popular in mainstream media during the 1980s and 90s. Carter had established that a key point in the X-Files mythology would be that Mulder's sister was abducted by aliens, and he had taken the Hopkins, Mac, Jacobs books as the source material for alien abductions. So the question was how to portray the actual events in the show. How is she going to be abducted? I think we start with a lot of what the accepted myth was that it was at night, that there was a bright light, 
you know, it's it's real monster movie stuff, really, the mythology. And then you go, well, people know what it is by now because of the Hills story that, you know, that was a movie of the week. This was the 1975 made-for-TV movie, The UFO Incident, about the Betty and Barney Hill story. And the Close Encounters is, like, so huge. Everybody knew, you know, the... The Barry being abducted is just one of the great scenes in cinema. And what can we do different? And you had read some things where people had been taken out their window or so, well, let's do that. Or let's make something up. How can we make it fresh? And it's here that the writer's creativity pulled the story a little bit away from the abduction narratives that had served as their source material. And I think actually that's where the damage to the mythology because you made stuff up because you needed to have something different for a TV show. And so people who saw this episode came away with a slightly different conception of an abduction than had been in the books at the time, and the folklore subtly changed. The childhood abduction of Mulder's sister is the er moment of his obsession with UFOs. From that event, Carter, Morgan, and the other writers built out the X-Files mythology. I had what I would consider to be the kind of foundation of the mythology that was based in things that anybody can read about alien abductions and kind of classic scoop mark stars, the triangular shapes, a kind of shape that appeared on Scully's back in the pilot episode. So I had the ideas that I'd taken from all of the accumulated science and background on alien abductions and uh, I created a world with uh, the episode actually if you watch the first and second episode of the X-Files and the season finale which is called the Erlenmeyer Flask you will really get a foundational view of the X-Files mythology that was established by Chris you know that Mulder's sister had been abducted and what the background was with Mulder you know, and I think those are things that you you have. And when you're selling a pilot, especially back in those days, it's just kind of red meat for executives. And then you get in a room. Nowadays, you have to have the whole show figured out for five years. But back then, you gave them a piece of paper. This is what six episodes we could do. And they go, okay. So it just becomes a process of sitting down and going, what can it be? Well, we're going to introduce a government conspiracy, deep background, so you bring in deep throat, you bring up more UFO stuff. The conspiracy is a critical part of the mythology and involves iconic characters such as the smoking man, deep throat, and the government agent, Alex Krychek. I've always been interested in conspiracies, I think because I was a child of the Watergate era. You know, I was a disbeliever in what our government was telling us and a believer that they were keeping things from us. So this fit in perfect with the UFO literature, which is all about government, you know, black budget, secret operations, and all the reasons there are for the government to keep the truth about uh, extraterrestrial life from the American public and uh, those who, you know, things that are, you know, scientific, cultural, religious, uh, it would upend a lot of the institutions in society. There's this idea that the government has been keeping all this stuff quiet, secret for their own purposes. 
and that one day somebody will get them to disclose or there will be reason to disclose the truth. I think that's where the X-Files mythology took flight from the accepted uh, X-Files mythology. And so we were imagining the world before disclosure and uh, Mulder and Scully as the people seeking to uh, learn the truth. Of course, the best laid plans and all of that. No matter the amount of planning and foresight, there is always the potential for circumstances beyond a creator's control to complicate things. If you look at it, the first year there wasn't a lot of mythology. I think out of 22 episodes, five, maybe, it wasn't a conscious thing. In January of the first season, Jillian became pregnant. And so she was going to have her baby in September. And so there was like, well, she wasn't going to be able to work around the first few episodes that we were filming for year two. We scrambled because we didn't know what to do, how to, if she was going to be pregnant for the whole first part of the second season, how we were going to do Mulder and Scully. And uh, we figured out a clever way to do that. Uh, a way that actually played into the larger storyline. But I actually had a network executive say to me, you got to get rid of her in no uncertain terms. And so you have to fight uh, against that. You know, you can't establish these two characters and then just break them up because he uh, doesn't want a pregnant woman uh, working on, on the show. And so we all came up with like, Scully's going to disappear. And that really began the mythology, the need to tell multiple stories near the end of the first year. We never set out to be this serialized show. It was necessity due to Jillian's pregnancy that we sort of shaped it in the end of the first year to go into her disappearing for the first few episodes in the second year. Strange Arrivals will return after the break. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. During our conversation, Glenn Morgan told me about one of the Monster of the Week episodes that he wrote, 
and talked about how a fictitious story seen on a television show could come to enter people's consciousness as something real. It's an example of the larger folklore-producing dynamic of popular culture. I would get a publication every Monday. It was called Science News. It was really a pamphlet, no more than 10 pages of findings in the world of science that week. And so, for example, one week I saw they had an article that I think they had broken the record for drilling into the Greenland ice core. I don't remember, a mile or whatever. And they pulled out this stuff that had not seen the light of day for 250,000 years. You know, that had just happened. That was a fact. And then I go, well, what could be in there? What could be in that 250,000? So I go, okay, it's a creepy show. What's creepy? Like, I find worms creepy. Worms, snakes, they don't have arms. They have too many arms, like a millipede? Forget it. I don't want to near me. And so I'm like, okay, oh, there's these worms. And then without 250,000 years of evolution, what would that do to us? And then that part, I would make up. I don't remember what it was. It gets into your brain and makes you paranoid or some stuff like that. So that's how you make an X-File. You take that science truth and another truth, and you try to fit them together by making stuff up. Inevitably, people would go, I read about worms that make you crazy. And I'd say, no, no, I made that up. And they go, no, 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 I read that in the National Geographic. I'm like, I know you didn't because I made it up. It isn't even a thing that lodged in my head. I just flat out made it up. And it always fascinated me how often people would say, not, I read about the ice whore from Greenland or the evolutionary traits of these worms. I heard about the stuff you made up and it's true. And so when I look at these abduction myths where some of the conspiracy theories that are floating around now, you can see where there's bullshit that our people are believing. In fact, there's an X-Files where Deep Throat specifically says a lie is a best delivered sandwich between two truths. And I just, I'm sure I didn't make that up, but that's to me, I always felt the best way to go about the mythology. So if you know that aliens come at night and you might take some other scientific fact, the position of the moon or something, then make something up, that's, that's how you did it. That's how I went about it. And I, I see that approach in other myths, contemporary. There have been other shows that focus more directly on the themes that we've been looking at during this season. The History Channel, for instance, has a show called Project Blue Book, which features a more action-ready version of Alan Hynek leading UFO investigations. Another show focusing on a highly fictionalized Blue Book-style program was Dark Skies, which ran on NBC in 1996 and 1997. Its tagline was, history as we know it is a lie. The show was launched based on the popularity of the X-Files. It was created by Brent Friedman and Bryce Zabel. Zabel, in particular, is active in the UFO scene. I think in the case of Bryce especially, but Brent as well, ufology was something that very much interested them. And I think that between between the two of them and Bryce having done a lot of the table reading, as it were, and Brent having had one or two experiences that he that between them, they kind of came together and figured out this is what they wanted to do. I'm Matthew Kressel. I'm the author of the Silver Archive Dark Skies on the television series from the 1990s of the same name. 
The series follows two agents, John Lonegard and Kim Sayers, as they investigate and try to foil the activities of the Hive, an alien race already among us. The government knows about the aliens and is involved in a massive cover-up to hide from the public their presence and the fact that we are actually fighting a kind of covert war against them. The show presents an alternative history with major events such as the Kennedy assassination, the result of actions taken by the Hive. The series begins, perhaps not surprisingly, with Roswell. Obviously, Roswell is the big one, but, you know, Roswell is ufology's Jack the Ripper. It's this big thing that everybody knows what it is. You can say just that word and it evokes imagery. You know, if you say Jack the Ripper, people are going to think, you know, fog shrouded London streets, guy walking through the shadows. You say Roswell, people think soldiers in the desert, crashed flying saucer, little gray aliens thrown across the ground weird debris so it's i think if you're going to write anything since we'll say probably the mid 80s that deals with the ufo topic in a big way roswell is going to be your touchstone i think what bryce and brent do that's interesting with roswell in terms of what dark skies does with it is it becomes the starting point of sorts for their history in sort of engaging with the phenomenon The other thing that Dark Skies does that's interesting with Roswell is, in a couple of episodes, it brings Jesse Marcel in as a supporting character. Remember, Marcel was the major at Roswell Army Air Force Base who went to Mac Brazel's ranch and was later photographed with the debris he found there. In the 1970s, he was tracked down by UFO researcher Stanton Friedman, and by then his story had changed. It became the foundation for the new Roswell narrative that emerged in the late 1970s and early 1980s, and that continues to evolve today. They turned him into a supporting character, which is really interesting for them to do. So they use Roswell and him to sort of set it up. It's almost in some ways the original sin of the series. It's at this point that Friedman and Zabel's alternate history diverges from the one we know it's made everything wrong and that in some respects at least at the beginning John Lowengard and Kim Sayers are trying to set right is bringing this out to the world Roswell is just one tiny part of the UFO mythos that Dark Skies decides they're going to run with another aspect of the folklore we've looked at that Dark Skies picks up is Majestic 12 and while the show retains MJ-12's role as the deeply mysterious keepers of the UFO secrets It also takes artistic license. Here's Matthew Kresel talking about how the show portrays the Majestic 12. What Dark Skies does is interesting with that is not only are they the ones covering everything up, they're the soldiers on the front line fighting the secret war. So they're not so much a group of 12 guys sitting in a shadowy boardroom somewhere smoking on their pipes and puffing away on cigars they're the ones controlling the generals and whatnot fighting this whole secret war they become the if you want to use the the term from tv tropes they're the sinister government agency uh rather than just being these guys in a boardroom and that's certainly something that separates them the majestic 12 of dark skies from the syndicate for example of the x-files Friedman and Zabel are also much more specific in their references to the UFO folklore. One such instance involves a callback to UFO Cover Up Live, 
which we looked at in the last episode. As a side note, it's interesting that Kresel identifies Falcon from the show as Dodie. Remember, Dodie denies that he was on this show. Anyway. There's a particular reference that Dodie makes when he's on uh, UFO cover-up live in 1988, talking about the alien who's supposedly at Area 51, who likes strawberry ice cream and listening to Buddhist chants. The aliens enjoy music. All types of music, especially ancient Tibetan-style music. They do eat vegetables. They like vegetables. And their favorite dish or snack is ice cream, especially strawberry. And there's an episode late in Dark Skies where they've captured one of the greys. And the gray has a craving for strawberry ice cream. And one of the characters makes a comment about how strange that is. <laughs> and it becomes, in, all, in a way, it becomes very kind of meta uh, in that kind of postmodern way that, you know, everything is influencing everything. Dark Skies was canceled after just one of an anticipated five seasons. It didn't achieve the ratings or cultural heft of the X-Files, but it was a primetime network show, and it did put these concepts and themes in front of a mainstream audience. Things like Dark Skies make great entertainment, don't get me wrong. But I think that they add to, in a weird way, add to the mudding of the waters, in that once it enters the pop culture consciousness, you know, if you say Area 51 to somebody, they're going to think you know, flying saucers, UFOs, same thing if you mention Dulcie Bass or Roswell, for example. And it becomes almost in a way sort of an agent for putting those ideas out there. And I don't think necessarily through, in that case, through any kind of deliberate act on anybody's part. It's just something that's in the ether and it's out there. It's an idea that's just waiting for somebody to come and pick it up and run with it. Robbie Graham in his book, Silver Screen Saucers, talks about hypernormalization and the idea that you, things become, the brain becomes so stimulated. The idea, the basic idea of it is that, that the brain can't tell reality from perception. Perception becomes reality and you can't tell fact from fiction. And I think that you, that is a great descriptor for where ufology stands today. The X-Files peaked in the Nielsen ratings in 1997-98 at number 19. Shows above them included the blockbusters Seinfeld and ER and decades-long franchises like Monday Night Football, 60 Minutes, and Dateline NBC. The group also includes the shows Veronica's Closet, Union Square, and Just Shoot Me. Much like Star Trek, the X-Files' reach has extended well beyond its initial run, and it has become a shorthand for interest in the paranormal, and in particular, UFOs. Think about the poster in Mulder's office with a photo of a flying saucer and the message, I want to believe. The phrases, the truth is out there, and trust no one. Even the distinctive theme music signals UFOs. What makes the X-Files so iconic? Certainly the quality of writing and acting and the Mulder and Scully partnership. But I think it also has to do with the way they capture a certain nuance about the UFO myths in American culture. A combination of conspiracy and a sense that while things can be found out, they can't actually be known 
and maybe things aren't really in control. Even if you are a UFO skeptic, it speaks to a narrative that makes sense. And because it makes sense, it endures. I think people look up into the sky at night and wonder if the truth is out there, if there are other civilizations. So it has a kind of human component to it. And the idea that the aliens have, in many cases, humanoid qualities and that they actually seem to have some stake in humanity and they have some either good or bad purposes for being here. It's our fear of the other that is natural. And in this case, I think it's the fear of a, an other that has either a good or evil intent. What is the source of the fear that finds its expression in UFO folklore? Why does this story continue to maintain public interest when other paranormal subjects have ebbed in popularity? Next time on Strange Arrivals. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeart3D Audio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. This episode was written and hosted by Toby Ball and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Josh Thane with executive producers Alex Williams, Matt Frederick, and Aaron Mankey. And special thanks to Wendy Connors, creator of the Faded Discs archive of UFO-related audio on archive.org. Learn more about Strange Rivals over at grimandmild.com and find more podcasts from iHeartRadio by visiting the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.